past month, I've explored a number of different building and gravestone materials. Most of these are things that you are really customarily familiar with. This week, I'm going to go more into the idea of both vernacular and small manufactured gravestones by talking about an unexpected material, terracotta. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So I'm not recording alone this week. I know it's been a while since I've had friends, um, but this is something that I really needed to bring in some people who have been out there on the ground and who have been doing some observations. So the folks that I am looking at today are actually really exciting because if you've been listening for a while, you know that I'm a big advocate of people who are, I don't even want to call them amateur enthusiasts, but people who are collectors, who are collectors of stories, who are collectors of gravestones, because often the everyday act of walking through cemeteries, of observing cemeteries is really important because you observe things that people who are just looking at them academically don't always see. So the folks I'm talking with today have for a long time been documenting what they see out in cemeteries and they do so in a way that I think is really incredible because they're looking at not just the historic stuff, but they are looking at contemporary things. And as far as I'm concerned, they are actually some of the best documenters of contemporary trends in headstones which is something I think is understudied. If you've been listening for a while, you know that I am a very anti, we don't need more Carver studies. We have talked about Carver studies. We have talked about the New England headstones to death. We need more research being done into contemporary gravestone trends. And so when I'm looking at that stuff, their stuff is the first thing that I look at. And so if you are familiar in the social media community with Corpse Alter, you have seen their work. Um, this is actually a duo a lady and a gentleman. Um, so Jean D'Angelo and Michael Bukowski, introduce yourselves to my friends here on Tomb of the View. Hi, I'm Jean D'Angelo. I'm an artist. I live in Philadelphia with my partner, Mike, and uh, we've been doing this project for a couple years now. He gets most of the credit for keeping an organized social media presence because I am not the organized one between the two of us. Mm -hmm. um, we've both been, I've been looking a little bit of a graveyard explorer for most of my life. And Mike has been kind of a world traveler for quite a while from like touring and stuff. So we started doing this project together maybe like five years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm Mike Bukowski. I'm also an illustrator uh, in Philadelphia. And yeah, I think uh, I'm mo I was mostly interested in like um, ossuaries and other weird morbid tourist sites. And then when Jean and I started dating, she definitely got me more into just like taphophilia in general. <laughs> yeah, no, and I will say that when I did my episode on incorruptibles back in <laughs> December, <laughs> Mike in particular just kept sending me all of this stuff and part of me was like damn I really should have interviewed them then because he, I had seen a few incorruptibles but his collection is both amazing and horrifying at the same time because he has seen some of the strangest looking incorruptibles that are out there we so, have one in Philly <laughs> yeah I mean if, if you are in Philly like I said uh John Newman um the poor Catholic school kids who are dragged to see yeah. the wax incorporated uh, <laughs> his big head. 
Yeah, it, it's it's just how anybody ever believed that he was intact and not just made. And I, I talked about this on the episode. I personally have only ever seen two of these. So I've seen pictures of them, but I've only seen two of them in person. So I'm excited to talk to folks who have seen maybe all of them. I'm not sure if you guys have seen all of them. I know that there's probably 175 to 200 out there, but. When you start to look for them, you start to get this paranoid feeling that they could kind of be anywhere and that there might be more than people even know about. Because we, so we should mention like right off the bat, a lot of the information we got off about them when we first started looking for them is from this book by Richard Veet and Mark Nonstein, Nonstein which um, it has a chapter on like unusual materials. I think if I wrote down the name of the chapter, uh, when a gravestone isn't a gravestone. And they also have an essay that I think you can find online. So we use that as our like initial jumping off point to find a lot of them. But we have since found them in kind of unexpected places. And a lot of them are disguised as granite. So once you find one alone in some random cemetery, then you start to think they could be in any cemetery anywhere around you. You know, so I think we found some ones that we haven't seen anyone mention anywhere also. And it, I think in your in the concrete episode um, or cement I know you specified which is which. I already forget. Yeah. But like very similarly, okay. like <laughs> when you when you go to the edges of the cemetery and look for the concrete graves, that's where you'll find the terracotta graves as well, because it's usually the same same pe- people. The same people making the same making graves out of different materials. Yeah, no, and it's one of those things that I think that there are very few people who talk about this. Again, like a big gap in cemetery research is, I don't want to call it settlement patterns. There there are settlement patterns that you see in cemeteries. And so I actually know Mark pretty well. So Mark is on the board of the Association for Gravestone Studies with me. We just just became members. Very exciting. I, well, I hope you guys will be at the virtual conference. They have just announced the virtual conference. It's going to be in June, at the end of June. Um, and I, they have not officially accepted it yet, but I, su- I submitted a paper topic. And it's actually a Philadelphia paper topic. Yeah. Cool. Um, um, so I was not surprised at all when I read, because I actually read through a couple of the articles that he and Richard have written as well. And they go a lot into it. So... I think it's fair to start by saying that this is part of a larger phenomenon, correct? So these, I guess we can call them grave markers because they're technically not headstones, like you said. Um, These grave markers are part of a larger phenomenon. So maybe start by telling me a little bit about how you started to observe them. Well, actually, this all started because of contemporary gravestones because we took a trip to the Netherlands and saw all these like really wild gravestones. And we got back, I was like, I want to see more just weird, wild gravestones. And I just started doing Google searches for weird gravestones, Pennsylvania, weird gravestones, New Jersey. And one of the first things that came up in the New Jersey search was one of the markers in South Amboy. Uh, like terracotta markers in South Amboy. And I was like, oh, this is weird. We've been to the cemetery and I didn't notice it. And it's because it was in that section of like concrete and like uh, kind of more weathered age stones. 
And we went back to that cemetery and they're just so unique. The headstones are, or the markers are so unique and so interesting. And like, once you like see them, it's almost like a magic eye thing where you like can't stop seeing them. And like, you're like, how did we ever miss these? Because they're like bright red, bright yellow, like glazed, like they, yeah, they just wild details. I think honestly, because I, it, I was not aware that there was such a thing. I probably like just <clears throat> looking over them probably would have mistaken them for like painted concrete or cement concrete painted painted concrete. It, it is concrete. Or, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, or like I said, some of them literally are made out of that Gramatex material that looks like granite. Um, but once you know that that is a thing, then you start to notice things like when they're a little chipped, you see a little bit of the like yellowish reddish stone underneath like once you know that terracotta is a material that you could be finding in that area then you start to be more keyed into like the fact that sometimes there's actually a a ton of them you never noticed and we also kind of really got into this around the time the pandemic started so it was kind of a cool scavenger like socially distant scavenger hunt for us to do we would just get in the car mask up and drive to a remote cemetery and hunt for terracotta gravestones and be outside without having to worry about like being in t- contact with people. So that, I think that was a big factor in how <laughs> we wound up like finding as many as we did. No. And I will say that like, even for myself, and I talked about this last week in the episode that I did about concrete is that I had been in many cemeteries that had concrete markers, but if you're not looking for them again, they're very easy to overlook. And I will say that the two that I have seen was actually on a trip that I purposely took to look for concrete markers. Uh, oh, okay. In last episode, I talked about how there is a couple up in New Jersey who have done a lot of research into concrete markers. And so the two I have seen are actually, I don't know if it's technically Perth Amboy or Fords. I think they're technically in Fords, which is like kind of a neighborhood of it. Hmm. And I had gone to both of these cemeteries to look for concrete markers and I stumbled across two terracotta markers and I'm like, what the hell is this? And it's a little strange. Okay. Was one of, was one of the, was one of, I don't remember the name of this cemetery, but there's that cemetery with all the, I think they're Hungarian. So uh, so they're across, these two are across the street. One of them is St. St. John the Baptist, Russian Orthodox. I'm not sure what the one is across the street. They're across, they're two separate cemeteries. They're across the street from each other. Mm-hmm. And they these are both glazed terracotta and they're both so, crosses. So one is like a shiny glaze and it's just white. The other one is like a matte oh, has the rosettes. Yeah. So I know exactly what cemetery there is. I thought it was a different one because there's a, um, some amazing concrete markers in New Jersey that also... We had gone years ago, saw the concrete markers, and they really made an impression on me because they had a strange shape. And we went back this year and realized that there were also terracotta in that one. So, um, yeah, that, that cemetery that the cemetery you're talking about, where they're across from <laughs> each other, we know. Yeah, I know which one that is. There's actually like seven or eight in one cemetery, and three in the cemetery across the street from it, like yeah. terracotta ones. That's also where we saw Paul Dracula. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was a name I took note of. <laughs> oh, that's pretty awesome. 
Yeah, no. And that day I, I, I wandered a lot and I remember I went in the middle of the summer and it was hotter than hell. So I can remember I drove from there and I think I might've gone to the other cemetery because the other one is not too far away. And there's a whole cluster. They're all Catholic cemeteries and they are all different denominations. So there's like Our Lady of Hungary. There's an Italian cemetery. There's a Jewish cemetery. Yeah. And I only remember this detail because it was summer. It was very hot. There was a Rita's across the street. So I remember I left the cemetery, walked across the street, got water ice at Rita's, and then I walked back, which is maybe saying the most Philadelphia thing ever. Um, but so I think I have also been to those cemeteries because I remember the Italian one in particular was super crazy. So that's um, part of that's another part of our formula now for finding them, right? Like you we've mostly found them in Catholic cemeteries with like a very specific demographics it's like these these specific immigrant communities in a very specific time period and so if you can find a, a catholic cemetery that's old enough and then go to the perimeter where you see the concrete and stuff so that's like part of how we look for them now is just to try to find an older catholic cemetery in a region that we know might have them and then go to that area of the cemetery so it's like italian polish hungarian danish immigrants from like the late 1800s to the very <laughs> early 1900s mentioned <laughs> also like the expediency of some of these materials because um you know from the reading I've done and just also from what I've observed there was a huge sort of burst of these terracotta graves that were the more mass-produced style um, right around the time of the 1918 pandemic. And we have gone to cemeteries where we found like maybe 10 almost identical, um, the, the white glazed cross style ones, and they were all from 1918. Um, so it was like a way that you could have a marker produced extremely quickly because people were dying very quickly. Um, and without, like you said, time to save money or be prepared to be burying maybe like multiple members of their family, which is like, you know, been a very interesting thing to observe in the middle of another pandemic about a century later. And I'm also like, you know, my grandmother grew up basically where I live now um, and was here in 1918 when Philadelphia famously stupidly had the parade that made the pandemic so much worse. And I'm going to these graveyards and observing these markers that are like, you know, people from the community she was from, like Italian, like recent Italian immigrants um, burying their loved ones during a, a pandemic, which is like what I'm living through now in the same neighborhood. So that's been very interesting to observe. Yes. <laughs> okay. So we've obviously established that there is a widespread tradition of terracotta. Let's talk a little bit about why terracotta is so prevalent in particularly the New Jersey region. So it's New York, they, they occur a little bit in, on Staten Island, but it's primarily New Jersey. And there is a reason for that. And a lot of it has to do with the actual geology, which I've been talking about geology a lot over the past month as I've gone through sort of the history of different types of stone. But this basically all comes because there is a strip of New Jersey that is what's known as the Raritan Formation. And it essentially means that there is this naturally occurring bed of clay which makes it a very profitable undertaking to use this clay so let me start by talking a little bit about what terracotta is so terracotta means baked earth 
And it's not a new concept. Terracotta goes back obviously thousands of years. What you do is you take clay. Um, and I will say that not all terracotta is made of clay. I'm not gonna go too deep into this because we're gonna primarily talk about baked clay. Um, and it's really profitable because you can either add or subtract. So primarily everything I've been talking about the past month with Materials March has been things that are subtractive in nature. So you start with a big block of marble, you start with a big block of granite, and then you chip away at it. Terracotta is cool because you can either carve it subtractively and take it away, or you can additively carve it, which is pretty cool. So it's pretty flexible. Um, it's not just for flower pots. <laughs> it's fired anywhere between 1100 and 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. And what happens is, is that the iron content of clay oxidizes while you're firing it. And that's what gives terracotta most often its distinctive coloring, that red, brown, earth tone that we tend to think of, but not always. Um, <laughs> it could also be polychrome based on how you glaze it. We're gonna talk a little bit about glazing in a little while. Um, I love this, that the earliest recorded issue of terracotta was about 3000 BC in what is today Pakistan. And the earliest examples are phallic shaped. So yes, obviously people are going to dig out clay and they're gonna make it into a dick. That's what I, that would have been my first thought too. <laughs> I mean, obviously <laughs> I'm looking at this and I'm like trying to look for like high architectural examples. I was like, nope, nope, they, they were making terracotta dicks. That's what they were doing. Um, Ancient Egypt, you have, um, so the mortuary figurines that are known as um, Schwapti um, are made of a form of terracotta. So I think it's great that going back to the mortuary tradition of ancient Egypt, you have these mortuary servants who are put in there to serve you in the afterlife. Those were made of terracotta. And then, of course, you have the terracotta army um, in ancient China, which is formed about 2000 years ago, it's about 200 to 300 BC. Um, so we have a long tradition and it's a long tradition that is also tied to the mortuary trade, which I think is pretty great. So you have Egypt, you have China. There's obviously something about terracotta and I don't have like a definitive answer for this, but I think it's because you have, it's very malleable. You can make a lot of different forms about it. It is far less labor intensive than carving stone. And it's also far more lightweight. When you compare terracotta to stone, it's a lot easier to move. It's a lot easier to work with. And as long as you have the technology and the kilns to fire it, you can do a lot with it. Now. I think there's also a, like you were, you pointed out, there's also like a kind of poetic. Yeah, it's like, it has a like sim, kind of symbolic meaning to me too. Like the notion of like coming from earth and returning to earth and marking uh, like bodies and then marking the place where your body returns to the earth with something made of earth. So this also is kind of beneficial to have artists on because I, <laughs> I always say that I am far too cerebral and like, I want to talk about like technical aspects of things and people are like, you know, there, there are human beings right there. And I'm like, not there are people too. So yes, that is wonderful. And I love it because I never would have come up with that. Well, even like, I mean, I'm not a geologist at all, but my understanding of the Raritan formation is that like a lot of the material in it is more, it's just more dead matter. It's like, 
like all, all, all geological material there's like a lot of dead dinosaurs in there and stuff like that so like there's just this like cycle in the material that matches like the cycle of being buried in the earth that I kind of think is neat oh absolutely and I think that there's something to be said too about the color if we're going to go with yeah. symbolism yeah that, that that sort of like red blood color there's something about it yeah well I was gonna say I think this does relate to one of the to the terracotta graves but i think that european catholics specifically american catholics have kind of taken a step up step back well, from south the south and central america too yeah yeah they've taken a step back but american from the, catholicism's um, not quite as yeah quite as much drama yeah not as much drama not as much morbidity like when we go on trips and like uh we're like oh yeah we saw this like mummified skeleton in a church my mom's like oh my god that's so horrible I'm like but you're catholic it's your religion this is your religion but it's this like this is how they do it in rome lady there's a yeah there's <laughs> a step but like american american catholics are a step removed from that but when you look at some of these terracotta gravestones these are first generation immigrants but i think it's it's good too because i think that they're that drawing cultural connections is really important and the idea that certain ethnic groups are going to be attracted to certain materials. It, to me, it's important to tell these stories because I've often said this, that the story of American cemeteries is in many ways, the story of mainstream WASP culture. So mainstream white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. The more you look at it, there are patterns that you can absolutely follow. And the fact that there can be a whole chapter in a book written about New Jersey cemeteries that addresses this to me means it's more than just a micro story. It's a wider pattern. And I also like, um, the one cemetery that I particularly like in New Jersey, that has cement markers that are Hungarian or no, they're Lithuanian. What was interesting about them, they had a really odd long shape and I looked it up cause I was like, I wonder if they're mimicking a form and Lithuanian cemeteries, they have, um, tall um like sort of slab wooden markers because in a lot of like slavic areas a lot of architecture is wood a lot of art is wood that's reflected in how they mark graves and then they come to the u.s and maybe they were working in an industry where what they had access to is cement but they were mimicking the form of the wooden markers they knew from home and i think sometimes also like a lot of i know that a lot of the sculptors that worked in the terracotta industry were italian and some of the forms of the like really unique handcrafted markers that they make they make them out of terracotta but they look like something you'd find in marble so sometimes i think people are also taking like the cultural um forms that they're familiar with and they're like in a new place with access to different materials and they're recreating those forms in like a new material too oh a hundred percent and i think it's always what you have access to we go back to them all the time sometimes <laughs> we go back just because the weather's a little nicer and we can take a better picture we've been to uh, alpine cemetery is the one that has like probably the most terracotta we've been there like three or four times already <laughs> And that one is in Perth Amboy, right? Yeah. yeah. Which that's more of a traditional Victorian, like rural cemetery style, correct? Um, no, somewhere between, I would say. It's not very large. There's, 
Is it one? The, is the one across the street a different cemetery? The one across the street is a different cemetery. Okay. So it's two cemeteries. I don't know the one across the street. The they Mary's, both have terracotta, but they also, they're kind of unique in that um, the factory owners and their families are buried in them. So they have grandiose terracotta situations. So you see like the much simpler sort of terracotta markers that like the workers would have had but you also see the terracotta mausoleum of alfred hall who owned the terracotta manufacturing in perth amboy and then across the street there's like a way to segue (laughs) yeah so to give you like a little bit of perspective so not only does the raritan formation exist but So in the mid to late 19th century, what develops is there is essentially an architectural terracotta industry that explodes in New Jersey. Now, architectural terracotta, speaking as an architectural historian, is attractive for a number of reasons. So first of all, terracotta has a really fine texture, which means that it can capture really small details if you are using it. Second of all, It can be cast in shapes that are hollow, which means it is lightweight and it can be fitted into a number of different scenarios. So in architectural history, when I think of terracotta, I think of Louis Sullivan. So Louis Sullivan is like one of the foremost architects of what I would call like the Chicago school. So he and Daniel Burnham are in many ways the architects behind the World's Columbian Exhibition. But if you look at a lot of Sullivan's buildings that have survived in Chicago, they have this really elaborate architectural terracotta detailing. And so in the 1880s and 1890s, terracotta becomes really, really popular. Now, the terracotta industry in New Jersey starts before that, and it's not until the 1870s, 1873, that the man that Jean just mentioned, Alfred Hall, um, who actually starts off as a brickmaker, he starts to develop architectural terracotta. And so he starts a terracotta company in Perth Amboy. And by the 1890s, late 1890s, 1898, he has 46 kilns that dominate the entire waterfront of Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Now, he certainly is not alone. There are a number of other manufacturers who are also doing this. But he essentially makes an entire career out of terracotta. And terracotta is used for a lot of different purposes. And there are buildings that you have probably seen that you do not think about as being made of a lot of terracotta. Um, The Woolworth building in New York is probably one of the most noteworthy. Um, If you have been to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, the majority of the exterior of the Philadelphia Museum of Art is made of architectural terracotta. And then if you are a true New Jersey person, the convention hall in Asbury Park is also primarily made of architectural terracotta. So there is a hot minute from like the late 1880s through the 1920s when architectural terracotta is used everywhere. When you think about this, it it really isn't surprising that it also translated over into gravestones. So tell me a little bit about what you have observed in relation to that, about where these terracotta headstones turn up and what they look like. Well, so I think the most interesting story we have about this is that there was a factory called the Union Terracotta Factory, I believe it was, which is 
which was in the Pine Barrens, and it was well, basically the earlier era of terracotta production. Yes, so. that was it. Was is that what you're talking about? She's talking about the later industrial period, but we. Can... I mean, no. I start with that because and you actually kind of led me down this path because, from what I could see, the earliest example I could find was actually in 1804, and that was in Mount Holly, which Mount Holly is right across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. But it is not actually terracotta because it's not baked. It's considered to be a clay marker. Uh-huh. Yeah, so we've seen that one. Um, and it basically just, lo- it doesn't really look like, like you it said. It looks it's, like red clayware. Yeah, it looks like someone just like didn't have the means and made a grave marker out of clay. And it's kind of impressive that it's still there, even though it's broken in two pieces. And then there's, um, I think in... Port Elizabeth, which is in South Jersey, there are two very similar, smaller markers that are, I would guess, not terracotta, but clay markers. Um, but the ones we were talking, I was originally talking about was there was a, a, the Union Terracotta Factory was in what is now the Pine Barrens. And they basically had they were making okay. so so for for non non mid Atlantic people. I, I think it's worth stopping just to talk about what the Pine Barrens is. Yeah. Oh, the Pine Barrens—they're <laughs> amazing. They're ve- if uh, the Pine Barrens are very cool and weird. It's basically a pine forest growing out of sand it, that takes up a large part of like central and south New Jersey. It also has like a very unique uh, what's it called aquifer like below the surface. Um, it's like a very specific, important, unique eco region that also has had, that also is like, uh, it has like a kind of weird folklore around it because a lot of the people that went to live there were kind of like social outsiders. There were a lot of enslaved people that ran away there. There were a lot of um, people who, you know, were sort of bandits that went to live there native people still lived there so it be kind of kind of became this place that people had this sort of like spooky mythology around but it's actually just got its own like unique culture that was also very focused on like you know self-protection so people had their own industries that they formed inside the pine barrens and then later people established more formal industries so there's some glass production i believe there's bog iron and then for a while, there was some terracotta production there, which... And they were making brick and pipes, I think, terracotta yeah. pipes. Um, the Jersey Devil is also from the yeah, Pine Barrens. the Jersey Devil is from there. And if you've seen The Sopranos, when Polly and Christopher try to bury a body and get lost in the woods, that's a Pine Barrens. Yes. That's like most people's cultural touchstone <laughs> for what the Pine Barrens is. But you hear, like, people... Which it actually wasn't even filmed in the Pine Barrens because they wouldn't let them, which I think is hilarious. That's cool, though. Like... <laughs> There've been, I mean, there's been a lot of. At some point in the '70s, they were trying to build a jet port through there, and there were there was there've been a lot of there's been a lot of work to preserve this place because people are constantly trying to do things like build jet ports in it and and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, and then there's just like a lot of kind of strange. A lot of people have a lot of strange feelings that it's a sort of like scary place, which it like really isn't. It's just, a lot of that was like a mixture of sort of like a kind of prejudice like that people have against like Appalachian people, for example, and then also sort of this sort of self mythology that also kind of protected people in the Pine Barrens from intruders from the outside world. So like stories about like bandits and um, the Jersey Devil or whatever keeps intruders out of your like community. 
Well, that's the other thing that's interesting about this, which also yeah goes to this. The so the Union terracotta factory that made bricks, they basically had a factory town where everyone lived, like the workers lived right next door to the factory. And when the factory shut down, it didn't take very long for the pine barrens to just swallow it all up. So when, and then also to the like mythology of the pine barrens, there are entire message boards of mostly New Jerseyans that are obsessed with the Pine Barrens that will like go hunting for things and like find these things and like talk about them amongst themselves. And basically this thing came up whenever I would search that there was a terracotta cemetery in the middle of the Pine Barrens. And I had to go through so many loopholes and like rabbit holes to try to find out what people were talking about. And basically, it was the cemetery for the factory town of the Union Terracotta Factory. And as the Pine Barrens swallowed up all the infrastructure that was there, somehow three terracotta grave markers remain. And they are not on a road. They're not on a, they're like just in the middle well, of the woods. It's down like a, it's at an intersection of a sand road that yeah. is off of a road road. And we, we got to a GPS coordinates. Yeah, so basically yeah. I had to contact someone on one of these message boards and get a set of GPS coordinates and swear I wouldn't tell anyone else <laughs> the location of these, these gravestones. Because again, people are also very protective of it. And they like, or this is a very important and fragile thing. And it's special. You can go see it, but don't let anyone else go see it because we don't want it to stay there. So we did. We like got GPS coordinates, drove as far as we could on a pitted dirt road, got out, hiked a mile on a sand road, and then went off into the woods and we found this we found these cool terracotta gravestones. But it's just it's so these are these would date from uh like this era, I think is the early to late 1800s. So this is like the first era of this sort of production. But this is before like the industrial terracotta, which is the late 1800s to like about the early 1920s. So it, but it, it was interesting to me that this like two different eras of production out of the same clay formation came like came and went. Basically, there was the Pine Barrens era and the brickworks that was out there. And then that was completely gone. And then you have this industrial architectural terracotta um, that pops up later. And I think the most of the stuff we've seen obviously is that that era. Which I mean, that's incredible to me. And I think it's incredibly important to document this. And I think people tend to discount the, the subreddit crowd, so, so to speak. <laughs> We're <laughs> out there on, you know, these message boards, um, you know, kind of being like, oh, these are the same people that went looking for the house from the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> and what do they know? And I would do that, too, though, to be honest. Well, like, to be whatever. fair, this wasn't a subreddit. This was like a like defunct pinebarons.org <laughs> message board <laughs> that like I've tracked someone's email down and luckily they were still using that email address. It was a Hotmail account, wasn't it? <laughs> Mike, Mike still has a Hotmail account. I do account. still have <laughs> But it's also, again, this is where I, I think that I struggle because I, I operate in a very liminal state in between academia, which, you know, I publish academic articles and I have those credentials, but also I produce a weekly podcast 
which most people in the academic community would spit on. But I think that if you try to eliminate the weekend warriors and you try to eliminate the people who exist within communities, you're going to miss out on so much information. Because the fact is, if you were going by the strictly academic study of terracotta markers, you never would have seen these. And these are really significant because they do prove that this is a continuous material use that not only goes back to before common era in terms of the Egyptians and ancient China and things like that, but it's the fact that there is nothing new under the sun, that before there was an industrial production of terracotta grave markers, there was a brickworks in the Pine Barrens. And before that, there was probably continuous use going back centuries. I think that's important to understand. And I love that you guys have seen this because you're looking and saying, all right, this isn't something that just happened. There is a pattern that you have to follow. This is funny. Like this, obviously, this would probably seem really obvious to you and a lot of people who their backgrounds in like architectural history, um, probably also archaeology. But for some reason, it just like wasn't a connection I had made until my friend who's uh, she's an architecture librarian just made this very obvious point to me. Like she was talking about what's up, Nikki. Um, she was talking about um, how, you know, we're part of the natural environment that we live in and the natural environment around us shapes the kinds of architecture we make. And then also it shapes the kind of art we make and the kind of forms that we keep replicating because we're building, we're kind of, you know, limited in certain ways to like what the materials we have access to can do. And that just shapes how we build everything around us. So she's like, yeah, you know, you go to a place where their main building material was trees, then you have the development of this kind of elaborate wooden architecture. You go to a place where they have access to a lot of granite, then you have this elaborate stone architecture. There's places where like stucco and clay work is the material. So like real, like it was like the first time someone said that to me and I was like, oh, done. Like in the same way that we build the houses we live in, like the same materials we use to build the houses we live in, we use to, we, it's the same industries making the materials for the houses we live in when we're dead. Like there's a sort of like notion that your grave is your house for eternity, right? So like you might live your whole life in a brick house and then go get buried under a terracotta marker because you lived your whole life along the Raritan formation. And that was like what people were making everything with around you. And I, I, I liked that notion. It was literally like, for some reason, someone had to tell me that and that like clicked in my head. Like, cause there have been like a lot of the ones in um, Alpine, um, a lot of markers are most likely architectural um, elements that have been repurposed. So there are some that clearly look kind of like, what would you call like spire topper elements? Yeah, or decorative like. Yeah. Um, there's, elements, yeah. There's that one we saw that's a, a cross, but it had an element added to the top that was like a ceramic flame that looked like it probably originally was a component of something else. And then I, a lot of the time people would either just like hand scrawl in the lettering or um, press it in like some sort of stamping element. But you can you could tell that some of these were like probably repurposed. They're probably and that's why you saw them in the communities of the people who worked. It's literally only like the only people who have them that we have seen are either people who probably 
worked in the factories or from communities of people who worked in the factories and were making them for their community or their family, or the handful of like really elaborate ones that are by the owners of the factories and their families. Like, or the there, I feel like there are a handful that are by the sculptors. Yeah, from the ones the factories. that are so they're yeah, so those are like you could almost break it down to like three different types. There's like the architectural or the like architectural repurposing kind. Then there's like the sculptural kind that are either that are elaborate and unique and unique. Yeah. And then there's like a very specific thing called Granitex, which the terracotta factories, I think they saw what people were doing and tried to cash in on it. And they were like, we can make gravestones out of our stuff so it was more like an industrialized yeah they were like um mass produced mass produced like yeah. very mass produced specifically for gravestones so like the ones that you saw that were like the white cross that's glazed those were mass produced yeah they're the granite little granitex i think they call them pillow style ones mm. that from a distance they just look like a boring granite thing but if you get up close if you know what to look for you can tell that it's actually you can see cracks in the glaze stuff. up yeah. close, and so they those, were very specific. Like, they were marketed. Yeah, they were marketed. So the mass-produced ones were like you, you like there was there's one that's a cross that looks like it's made of wood with grapes on it. And the first time we saw it, we were like, "Oh, that's really beautiful." A craftsman must have made that. And then we found three more. Yeah. So it was like, okay, that was one of the mass-produced ones that. that they had a mold for, and they just made a bunch of them. Yeah, no, that, that 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 all makes a lot of sense. It really does because I think that, and I, I can I think it was you guys who had posted a picture, and they're like, "Oh, well, you at first you would think that this is granite until you see the chip where the lawnmower yeah. hit it, and you can suddenly say, okay, it's terracotta." Well, we, I, even to this day, like we've found so many, I'll still walk up to them and knock on them. Yeah, because yeah. the terracotta ones are. It's it's like kind of hollow thud because they're they're all hollow inside. Um, yeah, it's like either like it's hollow inside. You can see a chip. Then there's just certain things where like sometimes we'll just go bolting across a graveyard because we're like, does that look <laughs> weird to you? Like some of them just um like have like a the color looks a little blue because uh one of the coolest things the Alpine Cemetery has some where the glaze. They, at some point, were experimenting with this glaze that would give the appearance of granite, but it was like a, a slick glaze. And when you got up close, the way that they were mimicking it, which is very interesting to me as a painter, is literally just with tiny flecks of blue and gray on white glaze, right? So from a distance, it looks kind of like granite, but there's something sort of uncanny about it. It's like a little bit too blue. It's almost like when you see a zinky and the color pops out to you because you're like, that looks a little weird. So sometimes it's just the glaze looks a little weird. It's a little bit too shiny. You know, you're like, that doesn't look like marble, but it's shiny. There's just you know? something yeah, just send us running. We saw <laughs> the other day we thought we saw one and like bolted and then we we're just like, Oh, it's just marble. Like, <laughs> it's really, really white marble. So, like you said, there are two eras. I would say that the height of terracotta is probably going to be from what about eighteen ninety to nineteen twenty. Would you say? Yeah, it's from the reading that I've done in this book. Nineteen twenty is basically a, just a sharp drop off, and they kept producing in like architectural terracotta, but for whatever reason people stopped wanting to make gravestones out of it. And some of the stuff that 
you know, they speculate in the book is that part of it is that the communities who are mostly doing this, um, they have more financial stability and they assimilated a little bit more and they were like, well, now we're going to start purchasing stone markers like the dominant culture here does. There's also, I, I don't think it's in this book, but maybe another one of his essays, some sort of like snide comments about these immigrants and their flashy markers from sort of like wasps. So maybe this idea that like that, the style of marker that people were like interested in when they first got here, they kind of like wanted more, the next generation wanted more Americanized markers and just lost interest, even though the factories were still there in 1920. I also figure like, go ahead. There are like some of, so some of the coolest examples, like Mike was saying, there's like several different types, right? And one of the types is like the really individual handmade ones that some of them were clearly made by sculptors who worked in the factory. Um, so you also have to imagine some of it was people like making them for their family or people in their community. Um, like not, probably not with the mediation of any like funeral home or anything, you can kind of assume that it's like, this is, this is your community, you know a guy, right? But um, probably like the coolest one of that type um, they actually know the name of the sculptor. His name was uh, Bruno Gandelis, Grandelis. And that's the one that like, I think that's one of the first ones we saw. We didn't it's, really know what it was when we saw it. Yeah, either. we didn't understand what it was. It's probably about five feet tall. Yeah. And it's an angel. I mean, it's a full bodied angel holding like a dead child. And it's like bursting out of a casket with like, um, like flowers pouring out of it. And on the back, the sculptor like etched into it in Italian, your father made this. So it's like the most direct example that you can see that someone who had these skills because of his job was able to like make something like this for someone that he loved, you know, and make this thing that like most workers could not afford. Like it's, it's a monument that you would expect it, that kind of grandiosity, it's something you expect from like your wealthiest wasps of the time, right? Like a full, full statuary with an angel, like bursting out of a casket. But this was made by someone who, he was like an extremely skilled craftsperson. He was able to make that for his own son, And also you know? to be fair, having been to a bunch of cemeteries in Italy, it yeah. is very fitting yeah. with the way the it Italians commemorate their dead. Yeah. Sometimes you you see you're in a certain cemetery and you're like I can see there was a guy who made like 10 of these like there was like a brief window time where you went to this guy and he would make you a marker I I mean I love being able to see it like as a person who makes things the idea of being able to like make something that important for someone in your family or your community is like you know very particularly striking to me and to see someone like sign it like that is really interesting because I've seen we've seen ones with maker's marks more similar to what you get at Brickworks you know where it's like a maker's mark stamped in the back the one in Baltimore is like a Philadelphia um, terracotta company it has like a stamp with their address and stuff but I'd never seen one that was like signed by a specific person in that way yeah I was gonna say even the the ones that they were trying to market as mass produced graves grave markers you still don't see them outside of new jersey the new, new jersey York. area yeah like a little too staten island but it's basically staten island to philadelphia like we've seen three in chester yeah 
Um, and it turns out there was a terracotta factory right across the river in New Jersey, like around in the Paulsboro area. So like you can tell how they got there, but it's still that strip of like Philadelphia to Staten Island. That's where all, even the ones that were mass produced, they were just like, they're still just in that area. They don't really like, and the one, yeah, the ones we've seen, the outliers that we've seen in like, like the one in Baltimore, it's like from Philadelphia. Yeah. But yeah. So like today, I mean, it's, probably a driving distance of no more than two hours, which is interesting when you think about the fact that, and I've talked about this, like, as I've been tracing materials over the past month, that when you start with slate, slate was all quarried locally. And most of these artisans only worked locally because stone is heavy. You're not going to be shipping it unless you have access to a shipping channel, which is why you have like New England carvers that show up in Charleston, South Carolina, because they would carve something and they would ship it. But until the advent of railroads, which, you know, like around the Civil War, you have a lot of this interstate commerce. It's interesting to me that even like post-Civil War in an era when you have access to railroads, that these are very localized. That's kind of an interesting thing. And I'm not sure exactly why it happened. I can certainly speculate, but it's pretty cool. You also have to wonder if there was a certain look which people who were in an area where there was a lot of terracotta would be more attracted to that type of marker you have to wonder well also i mean like something like terracotta like you were saying because uh stone you can only subtract from and terracotta you have the option of sculpting up that um opens up so many more possibilities um that it would be attractive just because you could, if you had the money and to hire a sculptor, you could have something completely unique. And that's like, there's uh, the cemetery across the street from Alpine has the temp- the terracotta one that is basically like a pagoda that every single element is hand sculpted. It's covered with like plants and animals. And like, that was someone who had the money to get something like that made that you could make out of stone. Um, but probably not with that amount of like detail and the delicateness of it. So I would think it would be the more, I would think the more markers you saw like that, the more you were surrounded in your town with this material that allowed you to have these really ornate details on your buildings and stuff. Maybe like that just becomes an option. It becomes an option to have something unique and like sculptural like that. And it's a little bit more, it's definitely would have been more affordable I think than stone. Well, if you drive around Perth Amboy, there are like a lot of like architectural elements that are definitely terracotta still like that have like the names of the like um, there's like a benevolent society that I think was maybe Greek that has like a Statue of Liberty with like the initials of what the organization was. It's on a building. There's like um there's like buildings that are just on a main street that have like 1918 on them. Like the, when the building went up, they're all terracotta, like terracotta Eagles adorning (laughs) all the buildings. Which this is something we haven't really talked about, but if you look at a lot of these terracotta markers, they have a very distinctively almost art nouveau style, which the British modern was like their version of art nouveau. I guess maybe the question I have for you is, do you see certain stylistic things that are pretty prevalent? when you look at these type of markers? I mean, so there's, the more mass-produced molded ones are basically just 
mimicking extremely simple forms that you're used to, right? So they're obelisks with crosses. They're the pillow style ones. They're not, they're, they're basically just trying to imitate what you'd expect to find, like a very simple Victorian style. Some of, some of the, the more elaborate ones to me, I would say look more like we were saying, like the, what I associate with like the Italian mortuary style from Italy, which is like, sort of like, I guess, I guess it would be neoclassical stylings, like um, botanical elements. Well, a lot of like clouds and like um, cherubs and like column forms and things like that. But I would say like, so there's the Sofield monument actually to me is somewhere between Art Nouveau and Art Art Deco style. It looks extremely modern. I don't know the year for it. I think it was like the early 1900s and it's a, yellow an enormous yellow glazed cross it's probably at least as tall as me so like five feet tall um and it has like a very i i think it kind of fits the artistic era in a very specific way and i would say that that one i was talking about that's terracotta with all of the botanical elements also probably fits in the art movement of the time i was gonna say i feel like a lot of the architectural elements the repurposed ones those do seem more Art Deco, like the maybe because the buildings were made in an Art Deco style. Yeah. And then those they're very elements were taken for the gravestones. And then once you have that established in a cemetery and you go to make one yourself, you're like, oh, well, I'll make it look like the other ones that are there if you're making a brand new one. I would say also that um, like uh, sculpting in that additive way I think it lends itself really well well to like soft natural forms versus like um, uh, like carving with a chisel with you you can get soft natural forms, but it's like, you know, it's a little harder. So it might have been a good way to to incorporate a lot of those like softer lines, bending lines and less um, like rigid hard angles and stuff. Yeah, and I, that's what I was thinking, because I know some of the terracotta ones that I'm thinking of have, you know, sort of the curling vines and the soft leaves a lot. And there's one I'm thinking of that and you probably know which one I'm talking about that has like oak leaves and acorns. Yeah, it's like a reddish color. Yeah. Yes. And that's what I was thinking, that, that there's just the same way that marble is really good for figural art because marble looks a lot like skin and it gives a very naturalistic tone the same way that natural forms look really good in terracotta and I think that you know as an artist you know what works and you know what elements are a little bit more believable in your medium maybe that makes sense to me also just the opportunity to be able to glaze in color um if you're doing well yeah if you're doing natural forms like earth tones make a lot of sense being able to glaze in color you might it might inspire uh elements in your design like floral elements things like that knowing that you could glaze them in a color um there are a few that have um we don't there are not so many that have a lot of colored glaze but there are a handful and the artists really made use of the glaze, you know, and it's, it's kind of unique in this country, at least to have color in a graveyard. So I could see that 
that just having that option in your toolbox when you're designing something is pretty cool. Mike also sent me a link about these salt glazed terracotta markers in West Alabama, East Mississippi, which have like a blue glaze. I'm really excited to see those. They're about four hours away from me, but I will find a way. Um, yeah, it's, it's, and they're all just things that like I've accidentally come up like in my searches for <laughs> terracotta graves in New Jersey. I'm just like, like the ones that there's some in Tennessee too, that I think I sent you a link to that like look more like um, pot forms, but they have like names and dates on them as grave markers. And it's, it's like, it is really interesting that they, it's been used so many different times, but not, I feel like the New Jersey ones are, there's definitely an explosion. <laughs> there's a wider trend. And I think it's important to document these because the fact is, even if they're only, you know, you know, the estimates are usually around 175 to 200 of these exist. But from what you have told me, it sounds like there are probably significantly more. Even I would say there are, like maybe I would, 500? I, we should count all the ones we've seen for Yeah, starters. we should count all the ones we've seen. So uh, while I would also say Richard V and Mark Nonsteed in the book, they do make a distinction between actual grave markers yeah. and things that they can't say are grave markers because they don't have names or dates on them. So those Danish Brotherhood ones. Yeah. That's a very, so that's a very common one we didn't talk about. That's a mass produced one. It was a, I wrote down the name of the, it was an organization the, the, uh, called the, the DBS. Yes. Yeah. The Brotherhood and Sisterhood, which was founded in <laughs> 82. I have it in my notes too. So I think those might be the sort of things he didn't necessarily count because they were supposed to be supplemental. Um, they're, they're really cool. They have like, they're all identical. They're kind of a, cre they have a cream glaze on them and they're kind of, what would you call that shape? It's like rectangular with a slant on the face. Yeah. And they have like an elaborate sort of like crest design on mm -hmm. them. But they were supposed to be supplemental, but a lot of people, they could never afford an actual marker. So that is their marker, but it doesn't have any name or date on it at all. It's just the mass produced marker. So it was like maybe standing in for someone's marker, but I think he would say, you can't necessarily say that's a marker. And there's also, we've seen, there's one in Trenton that is a, uh, that's a full figured yeah. woman with holding a sheaf of wheat and a sickle. And it's the same exact color and like glaze of terracotta as another one we've seen in the next town over in Hamilton that is a broken column with like a basket on it. And that one is signed and has a name and date on a little stone in front of it. So that one's definitely a grave marker, but the woman with the sheaf of wheat does not have a name on it at all. So it could just be a statue. So it could just be a statue, but I'm assuming because they're so similar, they were probably made by the same artist or in the same factory and for the same purpose, but it's kind of hard to tell. And this is so where, you know, like I really feel like I completely diverge from the academics because I understand that as an academic, you have to have certain criteria by which you measure and you have to meet certain standards. But to me, that is too rigid and it's too Western a way of identifying things. That's how I feel. I'm yeah. like, it's in a graveyard. It's a grave marker. 
Yeah, no, it's it's not like some somebody was just like, hey, this gigantic piece of terracotta fell out of my pocket. It just happened to land here. Well, so the other I forgot, we kind of forgot to mention this, but the other place you see terracotta is um there are these things that are used to mark plots and they're ceramic tubes based or terracotta tubes basically with a number stamped on the top. And sometimes they're there just to mark a plot number and there's a stone there. But a lot of really, really poor people who did had no money to be buried are buried with only that as their marker. And also I, I can't confirm that this is the case with some of the ones we've seen, but I know at least like outside of in New Jersey and outside of around New York, it was really common if someone was imprisoned or in an asylum to literally just bury them with no name because of like stigma and money. And they're literally just marked by a number. So you that's another use for terracotta. And that is marking the place of a specific person. And it doesn't have their name on it. It just has a number. But I don't think that those are counted. And those are like, those are the only marker those people have. Yeah. And I would also say as far as how many there are, like keeping an accurate count, the, the, um, New Jersey Cemeteries and Tombstones book that we keep referencing that was published in 2008. The pictures in there, we've gone to see some of those graves. They already have significant damage to them compared, like when we see them, there's like a really elaborate one in Alpine Cemetery that has a like maybe one foot tall urn on the top that is intact in the photo in the book. When we've seen it, it's been duct taped back on. Yeah. So that could be. There's like loss. There's like, um, and then also there's the fact that we've gone to cemeteries and found them in the garbage. Yeah, we've literally found them like just in in like the refuse in shrubbery, flipped over with like trash. Yeah, we there was the the cemetery near in South Amboy or Perth Amboy where the one that you've seen. There's a cemetery a little further up that's a Ukrainian cemetery. We were there or a Hungarian cemetery, we were there and we looked at the, by the refuse pile where they put the leaves and the old flowers and we saw a piece of terracotta and I was like, oh, I wonder if that's like a part of a grave. And we went to lift it. It was a full, like three foot intact gravestone with like name on it. It was glazed. It had like all the information. It was not broken at all. It was just tossed in a refuse pile. I got really terrible poison ivy flipping it over also. <laughs> That's one of the things I think is important about documentation and keeping track of these things. And I, I know that the, the folks that um, Stephanie Hoagland, and I can't remember her husband's name, but the folks that have been documenting concrete markers, they say the same thing where they will go and they'll go back, you know, even two or three years later. And these have deteriorated to the point that what they documented the previous time they were there is no longer applicable. And it's one of the things that to me is very upsetting. It's the same way that people whose only grave markers are the metal or plastic funeral mm -hmm. home tags that people use. Often, you know, cemetery maintenance crews who, you know, they mow residential lawns, they mow commercial lawns, they mow cemeteries. They don't know what to look for in terms of markers. So they're running these things over thinking that they're just trash, like yeah. a soda bottle or something else. And they don't realize that often that is the only marker that exists. And we'll say sometimes it doesn't seem like they care. Either. Um, one of, 
Uh, I'm actually really excited because my dad gave me permission to make a marker for, so my grandfather had two siblings who died in childhood, who my family, like they couldn't afford any sort of marker, but my dad knows where they are. Like they're in a local cemetery, local in Philly. And he's going to let me make a marker for them, which is really exciting for me because I have this experience of walking around this, these cemeteries. And I think about this all the time. And I see like, I see the kind of monument that they might've been able, they might've had at that time period. And I want to try to like replicate that. So uh, it's just something that's like been on my mind a lot, you know? So I think that that whole idea of being able to make a grave marker and to be able to honor somebody, it, it's, it's a really powerful concept. And it's one that we as a society have lost. And I think that we often don't think about the fact that these grave markers, we think about the financial implications or the pandemic implications, but we don't think about like how that might be part of the grieving process and part of the caretaking for our loved ones. That's really yeah. yeah, just knowing that like I, I know that it it would have mattered a lot to his family that they couldn't have done this. You know, like that side of my family is very into like the fact that one day they were actually so my family that's buried at uh Holy Cross, um they my great aunt literally like sold her house to her niece to afford this like nice nice grave monument or whatever for like all 10 of them to be buried on so like I know that really mattered to them you know so like the idea that I could do this later for some people that I never met like they died when my grandfather was a kid I never even got to meet my grandfather but like the idea of being able to do that would be really cool and to know that like you know their uh grand niece um however many years later could make something like that for them I thought would be really cool and that's like also like, please, like please, when you do it, please send it to me because that that's incredible. I'm gonna put, I'm learning I'm gonna learn how to do mosaic stuff literally to do this. What what Mike was talking about, like us going to the Netherlands and getting inspired to see kind of like different grades, like that was a really big thing that we saw there was like the um the cemetery culture there is like completely different than what we have here. Reckless abandon. It's anything you want. <laughs> like, so this is funny too, because we're talking, you were talking about like, we're talking about the academic sense of like, well, it has to have this date and blah. They literally, it can be literally anything there. You can literally just like buy like one of those um, light up Santas and that can be your grave marker. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to have any, any it doesn't have to be made out of any particular material. People buy like stuff from a garden center and make a marker out of that. We saw stuff made out of just like painted rocks. There like... was one that we saw that was like these really thin sheets, I'm assuming of homemade, I'm guessing porcelain, that were put on wires. So they kind of like balanced and people had painted notes to the person on them. And there were like 30 stuck in the ground on this grave. And I was just like, this is why do we stick to such rigid norms of what graves can be when like you, there's like it, everything, every single grave was just like notable. It, like every grave there, if you put it in another, in an American grave would have been the one that you went to see. Like they all or were just it would like have been the one the landscaper ran over with the mower. <laughs> they thought it was just some stuff people left on the ground. Like literally they had, someone had a, full-size bronze Conan sculpture. I have there. seen that one. Yeah, I've seen you post pictures of that one. And then other people just had like some like 
pieces of broken mirror, like arranged in a heart shape on the ground. Like literally it can be anything you want, which I think is really cool. And it, it felt, everything felt much more personal. It felt like either the materials were significant to the person or the people or people in their life chose these items and these materials specifically to mark their grave, which I thought was really cool. A big thanks to Mike and Jean for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed a bit of a peek into how, as a community, Taphophiles really are doing quite a bit for not just documenting, but also raising awareness about particular types of markers. And while terracotta really is a a sort of weird niche in the graveyard world, I do think it's an important topic to consider when we're talking about materials because in many ways the region that it comes from and the material are one and the same. And hopefully in the future I get to explore more examples, some of these examples that we talked about in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee. So I really hope that you enjoyed this. I would encourage you to check out Mike and Jean's work. It is featured, as I said, corpse underscore altar. Um, Altar with an A, not an E. I will link everything up in the show notes so you can check that out. As always, if you are enjoying the podcast, please, please, please rate and review. It does make an incredible difference in just the visibility of the podcast. So log into Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Do leave a five-star review because it makes a huge difference. As always, also follow along on social media, Instagram and Facebook, Tomb of the View Podcast. I did interview Mike and Jean for about another hour after where this podcast ends. We talked a little bit about some other things, and I hope to release that as sort of a bonus episode in the near future. So I will get back with them because they took a very interesting vacation recently, and I want to share some of what they saw while they were out there exploring things on a little tombstone vacation. But for now, hopefully you enjoyed Terracotta. Have a wonderful weekend. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View.